0: available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash Milk to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
1: You know, if you go to a dinner party, the wine label might be the only labeled object on the table. Nothing else would have a a packaging or a label, but the wine and the wine label is there. People, they grab it, they pick it up. Maybe during a lull in the conversation, they'll just spin it around. And and it's just something to get people talking.
0: That was an excerpt from our story with reporter Andres O'Hara. He explores the science of wine labels and how a new wave of designs may be influencing what consumers are drinking. Right now, it's my interview with restaurateur and award-winning opera singer, Alexander Smalls. He's been called the father of Southern Revival cooking. He's teamed up with J.J. Johnson to explore Afro-Asian cooking in their new book, Between Harlem and Heaven. Alexander,
2: how are you? Well, I'm great. Good morning. Good morning.
0: Um, Let's start at the beginning. This book, Between Harlem and Heaven, has an interesting premise. And the premise is you want to go out and cook like your grandmother. But in this case, you're talking about a very different culinary heritage than I think I've ever experienced before. And the notion is that after the Civil War in America, a lot of workers came from Asia and they were migrant workers and their cooking mixed with the African-American experience. And you had this sort of hybrid of West Africa, America, India, the Far East. And that's, that's an interesting notion. I've never considered that. So is there a big tradition in the African-American culinary history of mixing the Far East and India with the cooking of West Africa and then the cooking of, of the South?
2: Well, let me say that that's certainly a part of the story. But actually, it's even deeper and far-reaching than that. This is really a celebration of the food of the African diaspora. How through slavery, Africa changed the global culinary conversation. It has been a concentrated effort to follow the slave route of the five continents where slaves were found. Even dating back as far as China, the Song Dynasty in the 1500s. It's really about probably uh, a dark and somewhat horrific part of our history, that I went looking for the silver lining through culture and culinary experience.
0: So I was talking about how the cooking in America changed as a result of that diaspora. You're also saying it worked in reverse, that it, it also changed the, the conversation around the world?
2: I really wanted to have a, a really unique concentrated focused conversation uh, in this book about the journey of african slaves not only in america but also how they left africa and essentially lived throughout um, the global continent and interestingly enough the the part that you highlighted essentially when uh, slavery was abolished you know we had a lot of uh, migrant workers from china and India-Asia to come uh, and do many of the jobs that African slaves did, Uh, interestingly and more concentratedly, in the Caribbean. You know, places like Jamaica, uh, where you had more of a Chinese influx, and Trinidad-Tobago, where there was a strong Indian influx. And, you know, this whole concept of organic fusion that happened culturally and culinarily was really extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I thought it was. Um, I mean, it's almost mind blowing because you you put things <laughs> together. I never would have thought. I mean, you have you know jollof, which is the chicken and uh, onion dish from Senegal, fajota, suya and dibi, you know, sort of the meat on a stick that are grilled in West Africa, mm-hmm. ramen, mm-hmm. Brazilian fish stew, fonio, the grain from West Africa, gnocchi shows
2: up, udon. Well, they but you know they are there are no boundaries except that it really does come out of a collective of cultures. I mean, if you think about Brazil, for example, the largest population of Africans outside of Africa are in Brazil. Coincidentally, the largest population of Japanese outside of Japan are in Brazil. (laughs) And for years, and 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 therein lies a coming together of culinary highlights.
0: So let's talk about Harlem a little bit back in the 20s, 30s, when there was a real renaissance of culture there. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there was a lot of little details in your book, which I really found interesting. Uh, Sugar Hill is something that's uh, old-timey music, and it's it's something that appears a lot. Well, Sugar Hill, could you just tell us what Sugar Hill was uh, in Harlem, the place?
2: Well, you know, uh, Harlem was an interesting um, collective of Various folks uh, from the uh, African diaspora, particularly as you mentioned uh, during the Renaissance. But out of that sort of Renaissance, you know, you had extraordinary influences and culinary influences from the diaspora all over the world. You also had this uh, collision of art and music that came together, and it was an interesting time for. African-American writers who were being featured and finding their voices in a very healthy and organic cultural collective, if you will. And of course, Harlem was afire with with jazz. I mean, I had uh, the opportunity with uh, my business partner, Richard Parsons, some six years ago to reopen Minton's Playhouse, which essentially was the birthplace of bebop. Uh, Bebop was one of those crazy music concepts that seemed to have no boundaries. It was a hot belly of aliveness, if you will, and blackness and and elevation and uh, a very exciting time, and Harlem supported that whole thing. So you had neighborhoods like, um, for example, Sugar Hill, where a lot of the elite African Americans lived and postured a climate of... Prosperity and uh, and excitement and interest. It was really a hot time in the city of Harlem.
0: It just seems like such a wonderful time and place. Uh, you know, I, I think it was probably the most interesting neighborhood in in New York at the time.
2: Yes. yes uh, by yes. far.
0: Uh, okay. The recipes. So here's no. my, my here's my. First, I'm going to ask you a tough question now. Your cornbread recipe, and I, I've been yelled at by many Southern cooks who say do not put sugar in my cornbread, right? And that's the big <laughs> difference between the South and the North. You know, some in Boston, you eat cornbread, it's like dessert. But you've got a bunch of sugar in your cornbread. So is, is that a New York City cornbread? Is that the cornbread your grandmother used to make? Uh, what? Why is there sugar in your cornbread? That's my first question.
2: Well, interestingly enough, I have as many recipes for cornbread as I have socks. And <laughs> I have a lot of socks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> And sure. And it... It stems, again, from organic cultural infusions of people. For example, my grandmother on my father's side would have never put sugar in a cornbread coming from the low country, Charleston, Buford, and the Gullah Islands. On the other hand, my grandmother and my mother, uh, who come from upcountry, had no problem with sugar. Cornbread also has its own history going from a almost cornbread pound cake to a cornbread uh, that was made totally with no flour but all cornmeal right. and no sugar. So we put in the book, because the whole idea is not uh, to create authentic, traditional recipes, but rather uh, a, a sort of interpretation of uh, recipes of, of the diaspora. And this particular cornbread was well received at the restaurant so we went with that recipe but I can give you some more. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: Well, and, and give me some socks, too, while you're at it. Uh, yeah, there's another recipe, You, you uh, a guinea hen, you use cinnamon, uh, which, I, which is very typical in lots of places. Cinnamon's often used uh, with meat. But I, I, it sounded like a really interesting recipe, too.
2: Well, and that experience comes from a North African experience, right. Morocco, uh, right. Tunisia, uh, you know, even as far up as Lebanese. When I was in college... I had these Lebanese friends who always put cinnamon in their fried chicken, hmm. and it was curious to me. And they traced their roots back to North Africa, and so in studying the sort of the spice highways of North Africa and and those influences, the spices that are from India, Asia that now are alive and well in South Africa. Uh, cinnamon was used with portrait in interesting ways, and it, I thought it translated very well into our fried guinea hen. And, of course, the guinea hen is a West African bird that right. the French captured, and uh, essentially we associate the French with guinea hen more than we do Africa. So it was important to me to bring it back, um, not so much as an exotic uh, feature, but uh, something that was uh, and is a big part of the West African culinary experience.
0: So uh, you've obviously talked about two things. We've talked about two things, music and cooking. And they obviously go together in your mind, and they go together for a lot of people. H- how do they go together?
2: Well, you know, I would say music and food are the soundtracks of my life. And I've kind of created a life in the container of those two artistic disciplines. You know, when you come up and you grow up in a small town, you essentially uh, get up from one meal thinking about the next. In my family, our lives evolved around those three meals a day and the preparation of them. And um, we were also, because my grandfather was a city farmer, he had a half-acre backyard that was uh, turned into a garden every spring. And often, I would I would uh, work in that garden and I would sing. Because singing made me very happy and I was a happy child. So I was able to take all of that and continue evolving as an adult. And you know, I still sing and cook.
0: That was Alexander Smalls, author of Between Harlem and Heaven. You can subscribe and listen to Most Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you awake? Are you ready to go?
3: Chris, I am ready to do this.
0: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Yes, this is Elizabeth Tillinghast Ottinger um, in Middlebury.
0: Oh, Middlebury's not far from my farm. Lovely town, by the way.
4: Yes, well, I have a question for you. Um, I have been trying to serve toast for at cocktails, which
3: I find far nicer than, nibbles, um, than crackers for nibbles, but I have been totally unsuccessful in making the toast in advance. Um, i read online that you toast it, and then you put it in a bag and suck out the excess air with straw. I've tried that. It works for half an hour, and then the toast always becomes limp and unpleasant. And
4: I've tried this with all kinds of bread, and I would very much like to know what you have to say in this topic.
0: Sucking out the air with a straw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's okay, what it that's, that's a new one. I mean, well, uh, it's like bruschetta. I mean, you could... Use a 350 oven, slice the bread, brush it with olive oil, salt, a little pepper maybe, some spice if you like. Put it in the oven on a rack, on a baking tray, and let it get really brown. And that way you'll really dry it out.
4: Oh, The what toaster a brilliant is not idea. going to
0: uh, get enough of the moisture out.
4: Well, gee, I will most certainly try that.
0: Or do a whole bunch, if you're thinking more bruschetta, just do a whole bunch in the oven soon before the guests arrive
3: and mm-hmm. maybe
0: you don't brown it quite as much but a long, slow, moderate oven will get mm-hmm. rid of more moisture than a toaster. But
3: I just say leave it uncovered even. I mean, what's the problem with doing that? What do you think? If
0: you use the oven method, leave it uncovered.
3: Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Have you been doing it in the toaster? I've been putting it under the oven broiler because I don't have a toaster. I have a tiny kitchen.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. not going to work no, I because think... if the heat's too high, you're not going to have enough time to get to the center of the bread to really evaporate the moisture. Right. This so. is
4: so Helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. And by the way, I
3: agree with you. I think homemade toast is really nice. So good for you.
4: Great. Thank you.
3: Take care. Bye-bye.
5: All right. Thank you.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line?
5: Hi, this is Alyssa from Sydney, New York.
3: Hi, Alyssa from Sydney. How can we help you today?
5: I have a question about scallions. Um, I have a couple recipes that I use quite often that have scallions as one of the ingredients. but When I'm working through the recipe, they never identify which part of the scallion to use. So how do I know which part to use?
3: Let me ask you what nationality recipe is it?
5: One's a Middle Eastern recipe um, with falafel. And the other one that I make quite a bit is a Thai chicken pizza. So the scallions are a topping.
3: So put on in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, I generally feel like uh, the white is a little more pungent and does better with a little bit of cooking to sort of tame it. The greens, for me, I usually chop them and finish with it. You know, they're sort of more grassy. Not that they don't have a little bit of a peppery bite. Chris, what do you think?
0: I totally agree. The whites, I would definitely cook a little bit. I mean, there was a, a great story about a cooking school teacher who, Marion Cunningham, who you know. Yes. I, once a month, she used to give a free cooking class just to keep her hand in the game. And she asked a student just the same question. And sometimes they're referred to as green onions, you know, scallions. And the students said they always threw away the white part because the recipe said green.
3: Oh, that's so funny. So she
0: thought they just referred to the top. So it's a very good question. I think the whites are usually used for some cooking and the greens can be used as a topping later or not have to be cooked.
3: When I write a recipe, I always indicate—and when I worked at gourmet, we did, too—we'd say whites with, you know, a half-inch of the light green part, or we'd say whites and greens or just the whites. So that's bad recipe writing, too.
5: Yeah, and that was my other part of the question, which you, I think, answered. Um, But when you talk about the greens, I am wondering if, like, the light green part— Versus the darker green part, which is kind of drier, if that would make a difference as well. Is it just that whatever is closest to the white is going to have the most strong flavor?
0: Yes. Well, if the tops are are very dark and slightly withered and dry, I would just cut those off, though. Make sure that they're in good shape.
3: In terms of the flavor profile, I'd say moving from the bottom to the top, the the white is going to be the most pungent, and then the light green will be slightly less so, and then the top part is more of a grassy sort of peppery oniony taste.
5: Okay. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you for
3: calling. Thanks, Alyssa. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm
0: Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a question, or a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or just send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Uh, This is Linda from Los Gatos, California. How are you? Hi, I'm fine.
0: Good. How can we help you?
4: I was at a dinner party, and the person served a lamb tagine, and it was really delicious. So I was thinking about buying a tagine cooker, and looking over the Internet, there are many models, but several of the reviewers said that they had a real problem with them cracking, even though they soaked them and used a heat diffuser, they still cracked, and My question is: Is it worth spending seventy-five dollars on something that could possibly crack? And is there a way to avoid the cracking?
0: We've used the one we sell. We've used. I noticed
4: you have one in your store.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it doesn't crack if you follow the directions. You could use it in a low oven, uh, which probably would be safer than putting it on the stove top top. of the stove. That would probably alleviate any potential cracking. I think the real question is: Does it cook better or not? Um, Yes. The theory is the shape collects moisture in the top, which comes back down on the food. Earthenware in general, I know that Jose Andres, for example, the chef out of Washington, loves cooking in earthenware. He just feels good about it, and also I think it retains heat more evenly. So if you're going to cook something low and slow, earthenware is a nice way to cook. It's a gentler way to cook. So, yeah, I like it. But you can certainly use a Dutch oven. Right, mean,
4: I have a iron yeah. Dutch yeah, oven. Yeah, you
0: can do that. I mean, that's fine.
3: I haven't cooked a lot in a tagine. I have used the earthenware, though, to say do a chicken in the oven. Mm-hmm. But I do it in the oven just because it makes right. me nervous. But let okay. me ask you a question, Linda. In your taste memory, was this lamb, like, really over the top and different in some way?
4: Yeah. Well, there were several other things in with it. So it was, I think he had some apricots in it and right. sweets. So it was a little bit on the sweet side. And everybody at the dinner party was raving about how delicious it was, maybe because the flavors were so intertwined.
0: Well, you know, I was in Morocco a few years ago, and I took a lesson in Tajin cookery. And what I found interesting was that the individual flavors of the spices, the preserved lemon, the olives, everything stayed intact and separate during the cooking. Mm-hmm. And so what you got at the end was not a fusion. It was more of individual flavors, staying the ginger, you know, et cetera, uh-huh. remaining individual. And so when oh. I tasted it, Uh, what I tasted was a lot of different things at one time. And that's why when this particular cook made it, he didn't saute the onions. He cooked them for maybe two minutes in oil in the bottom of the pan, threw the chicken in, the chicken was not browned. So there's no development of fond or umami like you would in French cooking. That's why Sarah's looking at me frowning. Um, But because they want to keep those individual components. So one of the things about tagine I do like is that it's gives you lots of different things going on in your mouth at one time rather than sort of a classic beef stew or lamb stew where everything's uh-huh. fused. Sort of it's, it's not fusion cooking. It's sort of the opposite. Oh, okay. But using sweet and savory, of course, which they do in many tagines, is yes. obviously And then, great. well,
4: since it's clay too, I noticed that some are glazed inside and some are not glazed. Does that make a difference?
0: The ones I've seen are glazed on the outside, not on the inside. And in most earthenware cookery is not glazed on the inside, like the ones Jose has. Um, I would prefer to use one not glazed on the inside, personally. Okay. You always worry about the paint used in the glaze. Right. Okay. Whether or not you buy a tagine, you can certainly make a tagine. The prep is relatively easy.
4: Okay. Go for well, it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay,
0: Linda. Thanks.
4: Okay.
6: <laughs> thank you.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Andre O'Hara. I'll be speaking with him about wine labels. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
7: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like,
3: pork sip of white lettuce, rice, pork sip of white and it's
7: just perfection.
9: My other top choice was like a hot dog like just have a hot dog and
7: have an allagash white you don't need to dress it up. There's something about muscles with beer,
1: especially the white that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant but then also with like spicy Indian food so I think it's just really versatile.
5: It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with allagash white.
8: (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm
9: creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of allagash white to it.
3: A lot of people use Allagash White in, like, a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add, like, a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
3: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Does the design of a wine label influence how you buy wine? This week, I chat with Andres O'Hara, who researched wine labels, wine stores, and how people actually purchase wine. Uh, you spent some time on the subject of wine labels, how do companies decide on the design, how people who walk into a wine store select the wines based on the label, and perhaps even how labeling has changed the industry. So why do we care about wine labels?
1: Well, I think we care because oftentimes a lot of us go into wine stores, we... We look at a giant wall full of labels, full of designs, and we just make a guess. We don't know what exactly we're looking at. We maybe we don't know much about the vintage. A lot of us are, are uneducated wine buyers, but enthusiastic wine drinkers. And um, it, it just hit me that, you know, we all had had to become kind of accidental design critics when deciding what wine to buy, and I just wanted to find out more about what was going on behind those labels? What exactly was going on in in the minds of the people making them and in the minds of the people buying it?
0: So the average consumer walks into a store that sells wine. What do they do? Do they ask for help? They don't want to talk to people. They just look at labels. Uh, How do they make a decision?
1: Well, I think that, you know, anecdotally, when I spoke to people I knew and I kind of watched people I knew buying wine, I also spoke to um, a wine buyer at a, a large store here in New York, um, and a lot of people, they don't want to ask for help. They feel a little intimidated asking for help. Maybe they can't even pronounce the name of the wine they're interested in or the name of the wine, in the bottle. So they'll they'll look for something in a, a price point they like, and they'll look for some kind of label that speaks to them, and they'll grab it and they'll hope for the best.
0: So how does a label speak to them? I mean, what what is it they look like? The colors, the design, the name of the grape, or you know, the uh, the blend. Country of origin, uh, does all of that matter? None of it matters?
1: Well, that's, that's I think, kind of exactly where the tension lies right now between these new designers and these kind of old school winemakers and wine label designers. It's because it's this idea that—and it, it's backed up by at least one or two studies— That said that, um, you know, baby boomers were much more interested in informational labels, labels that talked about the vintage and the country of origin. And millennials were much more interested in a label that kind of told a story, that kind of made them feel in a, a certain way. Because what I would say is that oftentimes you don't know what you're drinking. You don't know what what something tastes like, but you know what something looks like, and you can kind of interpret it. You know, does an old label with a, um, a chateau on it and a cream-colored uh, label with a, a script, does that say that it's something is, you know, classic and something is authentic? Or does it say it's something stodgy and old and uninteresting?
0: So th- there are new labels and old labels. And I guess there's an art to making a wine label so you spoke to a sommelier turned label designer, a guy called Andre Mack, and what did he have to say about what a wine label needs to do?
1: Yeah, Andre Mack is a fascinating guy because he worked at Per Se in New York. He is, you know, has a, this kind of culinary and fine dining background, and he he became a, a winemaker. And his approach, because he said, I think when I spoke to him, he said something to the effect of that it would cost something like $25,000 to commission a label. And he he told me, at that time, I didn't have $25,000 for my entire enterprise. And so what he did was that he just designed his own labels, and he just designed labels that kind of just spoke to him, that were fun, that were playful, that were minimalist. And for him, the approach was that he's trying to, to communicate, these labels are stark, they're black and white, they seem simple, almost too simple. But the idea is that he he wanted people to say, oh, these labels are simple, but all of my work and effort is going into the wine. And the other thing he was thinking about with labels in a contrast to the, the chateaus and the scripts and the cream-colored seals was this idea that, like, he wants something that pops off the shelf, that he understands that people are just going, they're scanning, and he wants something that they can grab, and, and he's hoping that his labels do do that. Here's what he told me.
8: You know, interesting thing about labels, I was selling wine in Chinatown with a sales rep, And uh, they have these huge Chinese weddings, but they didn't taste any of the wine. So we showed up with a bag full of wine and we're like, we don't taste the wine. He goes, we want to take a bottle. And they have this huge wall and they put all the wine up on this wall. And then the bride comes in, the groom come in, and they choose wine from this wall. And I remember talking to the guy. He says, I want to tell you something serious. He goes, your wines, they look cheap. They probably won't buy because they look cheap. They want something with a chateau on it, with fancy labels and so those people were judging something off a label that looked like it was expensive and maybe was crap because they're still shopping on price point but at least the label looked good whereas my whole thing is the opposite approach like we want to make really good wine and not so good labels
0: so you interviewed a wine store owner and showed her a sort of you know newfangled label design and what Mm -hmm. did she say
1: yeah, so what I did was I, I asked Lorena Asensios. She's the head wine buyer at Wine and Spirits. And I showed her a label from this company called Barrel and & Inc. And just to back up, what Barrel & Inc. are doing, they're a California-based company that are pairing winemakers with graphic designers. And the idea is that the graphic designer would make their own interpretation on a label. So I spoke to the head of Barrel & Inc., uh, Corey Miller, and one of the designers, Eric Murnovich. And he has a label for wine, and the label says rain or shine you're always on my side and it's just in these big splashy letters these pinks and these um, bulky bouncy letters and so I showed it to Lorena to see kind of what she was interested in the the store that she works at there's much more traditional labels much more conservative and she just dismissed it out of hand
6: is that a wine
1: that's a wine
6: (laughs) I think it's awful I think it's awful
1: is it the color, is it the...
6: It's everything. I mean, I didn't think it was a wine. I thought it might be, I don't know, some mixer or something like that. It's, it's yeah, it's not for me. I'm, I'm very traditional in my look, too. I do carry some outlandish labels, but I draw the line. When it, this looks very kitschy, too, and it almost looks like it was a brand that was made for export that, you know, doesn't really have any sort of compelling story, rain or shine. I mean, what on earth is that?
0: So I think you found that wine sellers prefer traditional labels.
6: But how do they feel
0: about labels in general? I mean, it's just there to give you the information you need to make a decision. Or does the design of a label have any impact from their point of view on how to choose a wine?
1: Well, it's definitely something that, I don't know if I would say it's a conflict, but it's, it's a certainly a tension because, yes, they need that label to give them the information. Maybe they don't have a previous relationship with the wine buyer, so need that um, information about the location and the vintage and many other things. But wine buyers also just have to be cognizant about what the label looks like on the shelf. And when I was at a big wine store, Astro Wine and Spirits, yeah, absolutely. They were worried about how can I sell this wine? How can I get people to pick it up and, and buy it and not have to hand sell it to them? When uh, what Lorena told me was that, you know, sometimes people's eyes glaze over and they said, all right, I just want the wine and I want to get in and get out and go to my dinner party. Here's Lorena.
6: Well, ideally, I want a wine that has some sort of a history or a story. And it can be a new winery, but there better be something interesting for me to be able to tell my customer. I don't need kitsch. I don't need cupcakes. I don't need, you know, puppy dogs on the front label. I need something that's relevant and kind of respectful of the winery it's coming from.
0: There's been some talk uh, about the emotion of a wine label, what you're trying to convey. Is there something particular about wine emotionally you're trying to convey as opposed to a bar of chocolate, a cup of coffee, a bottle of milk? Is it trust? Uh, is it excitement? Is it flavor? Is it uh, sourcing? Is use, is a scarce commodity that's rare? When they design labels, do they have specific emotional impact in mind of a certain kind?
1: I do think wine labels do have an emotional impact. And I think that it's for a couple of reasons. One, you know, as I was researching this world of wine, I just found that theme over and over again about trust and about how much people are worried about being deceived by wine or being just, just almost tricked by whether a, a wine is, is good or not, whether it's worth the price, what's really in it, can you really taste these things. And there's almost the, the joke, the stereotype of the the sommelier, you know, detecting notes of of things or hints of of, um, flavors that the regular wine drinker just has no idea what that's about. And so I think that the label does play into that, especially newer labels, which are, I think newer labels are kind of coding. um, And they're kind of hinting and winking at this idea that, you know, wine should not be this highfalutin thing, but can be just something that can be simple and straightforward. And that's maybe the emotional appeal, as if to say, I'm with you, I'm I understand what you want, and um, I'm not here to to trick you.
0: So so, so in other words, confidence. Yeah, confidence.
1: Yeah, confidence and trust. I guess the other element of it is just that when I spoke to Corey Miller and Eric Brnovich— Eric, you know, he's done graphic design projects for Google and Facebook and other companies. And I think that uh, modern designers, you know, very openly understand that the the mood that you're in, the, the way that you approach something from the visual aspect is going to influence how you consume it, how you enjoy it. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think about, you know, if you go to a dinner party, the wine label might be the only labeled object on the table. Nothing else would have a, a packaging or a label, but the wine and the wine label is there. People, they grab it, they pick it up. Maybe during a, l- a lull in the conversation, they'll just spin it around. And, and it's just something to get people talking.
0: And you have some tape from Eric Mernovich. Let's hear that now.
7: If this was ever on a table... I wanted this to be loud enough in a dark room that whoever was sitting in the table next to you, it would bring their attention. It would bring attention to your friends surrounded by the table and maybe even your, your server.
0: So after going through this and the design and the consumer buying habits, et cetera, what was the one thing that really surprised you the most?
1: One thing that I thought was really interesting was just how – these two different groups, and granted they're they're groups that have a vested interest, you know, just just the kind of battle that they're locked in. Because for wine buyers who know the world of European wines well and they respect tradition and they, you know, they have a certain worldview in their head, these modern labels are marketing gimmicks. So if they see a really off-base label, they'll just throw it with the labels that have cupcakes on them, the labels that have puppy dogs on them. Um, And then for the people who are trying to break the mold who are modernists, it's exactly the opposite. It's those labels with the chateaus and the script and the cream colored seals. Those are the things that are tricking you. So just seeing the fact that you're looking at two very separate things and you're just seeing the same logic applied to the opposite of them. I thought that was so interesting. Another thing that I thought was so interesting, there's this wine and it's called Bionic Frog and it's just this absurd like cartoon wine. It it almost looks like a cartoon from a comic book and it's this big silly frog on the label and the wine costs $250. (laughs) <laughs> and when I spoke to Andre Mack about it, he said something so interesting. He said, "If that wine cost twenty-five dollars, no one would ever buy it. Everyone would think it was a gimmick, and it's absurd. But okay. because that wine cost two hundred fifty dollars, you've got consumers who know, wow, this—you know—these people must have a lot of confidence in their wine to put something so bold and absurd on it. And I don't know. I just something about that—that absurd frog and that two hundred fifty-dollar sticker—is just—it just sticks out to me.
0: Well, it's the old saying in the antique business, right? If it doesn't sell, double the price. Andre, thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank Thank you you so much.
0: That was producer Andres O'Hara. You know, buying wine is like buying shoes by mail. You never know if they're going to fit. So consumers rely on other clues to make a buying decision. The wine store clerk, the name of the wine, and of course, the label. That makes me think that buying wine is like speed dating. You have so little time to gather so much information. So maybe buying the wine with a big frog on the label is not such a bad idea after all. Right now, I'm heading to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? All right, how are you? You got back from Rome recently, and you brought back some great pasta recipes. Cacio e pepe, carbonara. But you also came back with a recipe where they turned broccoli into a pasta sauce, which sounds, I don't know. Unappealing? Interesting <laughs> slash dubious. So what's going on?
9: Yeah, you know, broccoli sauce is a hard sell. And to be honest, when I sat down, it didn't strike me that I was eating broccoli sauce. It looked like pesto. It was bright green, it was light, it looked rich, it coated the pasta really well, and it looked nothing like broccoli, frankly. And then I took a bite, and it was light, it was bright, it was fresh, And it tasted of broccoli, but it wasn't heavy like you expect with broccoli. And it was a completely different way of coating pasta. It was delicious.
0: So the obvious question is, in Rome, their broccoli may be tastier than the broccoli here, right?
9: Well, I don't know that. So what was different was that they were using a part of the broccoli that we usually don't ever even see, never mind use, the broccoli leaves. They were blanching those and then Hmm. pureeing them to make the sauce. Now, here in the United States, The leaves are stripped off before the broccoli ever gets to the grocery store. And so our workaround was using the stalks because we found that if we peeled the stalks and blanched them and pureed them, we got that same sort of light flavor and the same sort of creamy texture.
0: But you don't get a lot of color.
9: No, we did have to find a workaround for that, and because we lose some of the freshness of flavor and color when we get rid of the leaves. And so the workaround was actually pretty simple. Baby spinach leaves, blanch them for about 20 seconds, and then throw them in the blender with the broccoli stalks, and it gave us that color and flavor back.
0: So broccoli stalks, broccoli leaves, some pasta cooking water. That was about it. A little bit of cheese, a little bit of hot
9: pepper. And it came together fast, a little lemon zest to brighten the flavors. And... That's it. So while you're cooking the pasta,
0: you can make broccoli sauce. Jam, thank you very much. Thank uh, a you. A new way to use broccoli at home on pasta.
9: Thanks. And you can find this recipe at 177milkstreet.com.
0: I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions from my co-host, Sarah Bolton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand That's moe, M-O-W-I, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot US, to learn more.
5: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello,
0: This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with my
3: beloved (laughs) co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I'm so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Elizabeth from Dripping Springs, Texas.
3: Hello, Elizabeth. How can we help you?
5: So I have a question about beans.
3: Dried beans.
5: Dried beans. Well, I am one of the people who have become obsessed with my Instapot, and I love the idea of pressure-cooking beans. But every time I look it up, the debate of whether or not to soak beans keeps coming up. So I wanted to know your opinion on both nutritional and cooking value of do we still soak beans before we cook them or not?
3: Yes.
0: Well, wait a minute. Now, the only reason to soak beans if you're using a pressure cooker is that I would use two tablespoons of salt and eight cups of water and a cup of beans, and you will have tastier beans because the salt will get into the beans, and you'll have more flavor. It will not affect, because the pressure cooker does such a great job with beans under high pressure, it's not really going to affect the texture that much. So you, Sarah's giving me that well, doesn't evil it, eye.
3: Well, doesn't the salt help to soften the skin too? Yeah,
0: it does. But in a pressure cooker, pressure cooker does a great job. So you can get away with it. And the whole point is, get the away with cooker. not soaking, you're yeah. saying. the pressure the cooker flavors make so it much, much better when you soak That's them. That's true. You're going to get much more flavor with the salt.
3: Also, it really, I mean, it's very quick with the pressure cooker, but if you soak them, they only take four to seven minutes. Now, you know, if you haven't soaked them, they take about 20 to 35. Four to seven
0: minutes in the pressure cooker?
3: Yes. Really? Absolutely. Well, no. Yes. That's crazy. I know. And I'll tell you, here's the interesting thing, Elizabeth, also. It depends on where you get your beans and how well, long true. they've that's been true. hanging out. Because if you've got a bag of beans that sat, and you may not know, even if you pick it up at a supermarket, how long it's been sitting there. If those beans have sat there for a year, they could take so much longer. So anytime I see a chart of how long dried beans take to cook, whether it's traditionally or in a pressure cooker, I just don't believe it. You just have to try so the, it out the yourself. the short
0: answer to her simple question is... Is for flavor purposes, it's better to soak them in two tablespoons of salt, eight cups of water overnight. But in terms of texture, you can get away with it in a pressure cooker. Yes, you can. And so,
5: does that apply to all kinds of dried beans, though? Yes. Black, red?
3: Yes. And as I'm sure you know, you have to add some oil to the water so that it doesn't jam up the drainage spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So, there you go. Salting and, and soaking overnight is usually a good idea. It really
3: makes a, I think yeah. it makes a huge difference. Elizabeth,
0: thank you so much. Thank
3: you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Okay. Have a great one. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
3: Hello, who's calling and how can we help you?
9: My name's Dominic from Chicago.
3: Hi, Dominic from Chicago.
9: My question is, I've been using the Better Than Bouillon for, you know, Better Than Bouillon chicken base. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whenever a recipe calls for, you know, a sauce or to deglaze a pan, you know, I've just been microwaving the amount of water I need and then whisking in the Better Than Bouillon. And my question was, I was wondering if I could use substitute miso paste instead because it's, it's in the refrigerator, and it's usually right next to it, and they only use it when it's called for in recipes, which isn't that often.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mm. think so, too. Um, there are three kinds. There's sort of the white miso, which is a little sweeter and lighter. There's a mid-range sort of a brown paste, which is mid-bodied, and then there's a very dark, dark red miso paste you can find. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: they also go up in saltiness. And, you
0: you know, if you're doing something with beef, for example, you might use the, the heavier... One. Color, right one. Yeah, But I think that's a great idea.
3: It's like an instant umami bomb, too.
0: And we do that with soups
3: and stews, use miso as a base with hot water yeah. or with water. I think everybody should be using miso more.
9: So when the recipe calls for, like, just deglazing the pan with chicken stock, it's not going to alter...
0: No. And by the way, the better than bouillon is what I use. I love it because it stays fresh in the refrigerator. Right. And you don't have to throw out the box or the can after you use <laughs> half of it. And the chicken base, I think, is very good. But you could use miso, absolutely. Sure.
3: I would keep in mind, though, the saltiness factor. So don't add a lot of other salt to the recipe because the miso will add a fair amount of salt.
9: Okay, great. Well, yeah. I'm going to try it for the next no.
3: uh, couple
0: weeks. And, yeah. and, and, and try out the different styles because they're very different.
3: Yeah, but they're all good. Okay, perfect. Great.
0: All right. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you very much. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. On a recent trip to Dakar, Senegal, I discovered Rof. That's R-O-F. It's a mix of parsley, scallion, garlic, salt, lime juice, and zest with the added punch of habanero peppers. Rof can be used straight as a garnish for roasted or grilled meats, as a stuffing for fish, tossed with blanched, sautéed, or roasted vegetables, or blended into a vinaigrette for salad. To make Rof, use a food processor. Add 2 cups flat-leaf parsley, 4 chopped scallions, 2 peeled garlic cloves, a habanero chili stemmed and seeded, one teaspoon grated lime zest and a quarter cup lime juice. Process until smooth. For a salad dressing, add a quarter cup of neutral oil. You can find this recipe at milkstreetradio.com. Next up, I speak with Stephen Muse about a very simple topic, which is wine closures. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. I see a multiplicity of bottles mm-hmm. and a singularity of wine glasses. <laughs>
8: <laughs> well, yeah, this is going to be kind of a dry run, you might say, Chris, because you don't really get to taste much wine Great. in this That's segment. Terrific. We're going to talk about wine closures and closure systems. And this is something that I get questions about all the time in the wine corner at Formaggio. Most of the wines are sealed with natural cork but there are some exceptions, and customers want to know mainly whether the way that the bottle is sealed has anything to do with the quality of wine in the bottle. <laughs> so let's we'll go over the options here that winemakers have to close their bottles up.
0: Let me ask you a question yeah. first, which is why was natural cork the first, I assume, yeah. way of closing, securing a bottle of wine? That's all they had, or there was a specific reason for the cork?
8: Well, first of all, it goes way, 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 way back. We know that the Greeks and Romans used cork to seal bottles with pitch and cork. The point of this, of course, is that oxygen in large amounts is the enemy of wine. So in order to make wine last in a barrel or eventually in a bottle, it needs to be sealed up so that you don't have easy access for air into the bottle. That's the whole point. Now, is there any breathing with a cork? Uh, This is one of the main benefits. Let's talk about what you want from any kind of closure technology in a bottle of wine. You want to be able to keep the air away from the wine, but you don't want it to exclude every bit of air. Cork does a really good job of admitting just the tiny amount of oxygen that enables wine to mature and age nicely. Uh, Most quality wine in the world is sealed with natural cork and it does a beautiful job. There is at least one major drawback Big problem for the industry is something called cork taint. It's caused by an organic trichloroanisole. It's produced by a fungus that can get into the cork, and it produces what everybody calls a corked wine. And I just happen to have opened a bottle. It turned out to be corked, and I brought it along. Oh, thank you. And oh, oh now so you get to stick your nose th- in.
0: This it. This is the tasting. I get a sniffing. Right. Ooh. Yeah.
8: Mm-hmm. The estimates are that 3 to 5% of all wine suffers really? from cork taint. This is what has driven the search for alternative closures, and we've got a couple of them to look at today. One of them is supposed to behave just like natural cork, but it's synthetic, and you can see mm-hmm. sort of white plastic. Yeah, Yeah, you know, kind of hard? So I'm going to open this.
0: I don't think I've ever purchased a bottle with a synthetic cork. Is that just because I have luck of the draw, or is this a common thing now?
8: A less expensive wine is you're more likely to encounter a plastic cork than in wine that's very fancy. So we're gonna pull this out. So there's your plastic cork. It's a kind of hard plastic. It's compressible, but it's really firm. It does a good job of solving the problem, but people don't really like it because, number one, plastic cork seems kind of cheesy. And number 2, they're almost impossible to get back into the bottle once you've drawn them out.
0: If you buy a bottle of wine for 15 bucks, is the cork 5 cents of that?
8: If it's a plastic cork, it's a very small percentage of the price, pennies. But a real cork, natural cork can get quite expensive. A winemaker in Tuscany told me that he pays as much as a dollar and a half, really, for a quality cork and a capsule to be put over the neck of his bottle. So that's a lot of money. And you multiply that through the sales chain and it can get rather expensive.
0: So now we have screw top
8: or Yeah, so several decades ago, this system was invented. We call it a screw top or a screw cap. I'm gonna uncap this. And while I do it, I'm gonna show you how to do it with a little bit of panache. So you don't really wanna do it like you're opening a ketchup bottle. Like I would do it, yeah. You know, hold it by the neck and then turn it. You wanna put your Fist and thumb over the neck and the top of the bottle. Put the palm of your hand on the bottom of the bottle, and then turn the bottom of the bottle. Huh. How chic. Yeah, it's a way yeah. to open Very a little done. bit of yes. panache. Right. Okay. Now, does this
0: let any oxygen at all into the bottle?
8: Much less than a natural cork. The magic here is not in the aluminum cap itself, but it's in what's called the wadding, which is that little pad mm-hmm. that sits down inside the lid. There's actually quite a lot of technology there, and if you're a winemaker, you can specify exactly the amount of oxygen exchange that you'd like to have in that cap. The other nice thing about it is that there's almost no way for anybody to tamper with a bottle.
0: Are you saying that with a natural cork, there can be tampering?
8: Oh yes, it's been done.
0: Like they pull the cork, put some cheap swill on it, and put the cork back?
8: Uh, not necessarily cheap swill, but typically cheaper. Less expensive swill. <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay.
0: So now we have the uh, Coca-Cola cap?
8: Right. This is called a crown cap. It's the little ribbed cap that we're all used to seeing on a soft drink bottle, right? If we're moving down the line here in terms of prestige, the crown cap <laughs> is pretty much the low-rent district <laughs> for this kind of thing. It's quite a marvelous little thing, and a lot of winemakers really like it. I'm just going to open it. I mean, there's no trick to this. In terms of the wine,
0: there's no, is there any breathing here? or is it totally sealed?
8: It is very tightly sealed. Okay. As you know, when champagne is made, there's a secondary fermentation. And when it gets its little dose of yeast and sugar, it's sealed with a crown cap. And then it goes into a cellar for 15 months, three years, four years, five years, and it's always under a crown cap. And only when they send it out does it get a proper champagne cork with a big bulbous top and the basket tied around the top.
0: All right, so the takeaway is there are four different kinds. There's the natural cork, synthetic cork, the screw cap, and the bottle like you'd see in a bottle of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Does any of this really matter to the consumer if you drink the wine within, let's say, a year of buying it?
8: What I tell customers is if you're going to bring home the wine and drink it you know, in the next week, in the next month, in the next six months, you don't need to be concerned about the closure at all. It's mainly, you know, get over whatever shame you have about <laughs> opening a bottle of wine with an alternative closure, because, in fact, they do a pretty fine job.
0: So there's no shame in closure. On that note, we'll close. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Chris. That was wine expert Stephen Muse. You know, early in the show, I spoke to Alexander Smalls about how African-American cooking has been influenced by Asian cuisines. In an era in which immigration is hotly debated, it made me think that when it comes to food, there really are no borders. Governments can stop the immigration of people, but not their food, and therefore their culture. You know, Alice Waters was right. Food is political. It can change the world. Or put another way, food without borders. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening.
3: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak.
5: Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme
3: music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio
4: Exchange.